me in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for the word uh, of your son. And Lord, I pray that as your word is preached, Lord, I pray you'd make me faithful, that you would bind me to your word, Lord, that we would hear your word proclaimed and that we would respond the way that sheep respond to the voice of a good shepherd who has already died for their sins. Lord, I pray that you would do this miracle in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you be seated? If you got your Bibles, why don't you turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. <clears throat> Galatians 4. We'll be uh, beginning at verse 1. Before we do that, I want to ask, wouldn't it be nice if there was a thing that you could do, an object that you could hold, and if you had that object or if you did that thing that you knew you were forgiven of your sins or that God would automatically answer your requests if you're doing that thing or holding that thing, maybe it's a certain kind of hat, maybe it's a necklace, Maybe it's a certain kind of food to eat. And if I want God to forgive me, just throw a cracker in my mouth and I'm good to go. I did the thing. I had the cracker and I did the thing with the cracker I'm supposed to do. I'm forgiven. Or knowing I'm, I'm going to die one day, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's the, the, the promise that if I have a little marble that I clutch in my hand... And as long as I'm holding on to that marble, I know that if I open my, when I open my eyes in heaven after, <laughs> when I open my eyes after I die, I will be in heaven. Just if I'm holding that thing, you know, some stuff that God's made and then, or a, a thing that I can do with that stuff that would make sure, that would make me sure that God would do good things for me. Now, dear brothers and sisters, this is foolish. It's wicked, and it's normal. You may not realize that it's actually something that's in you as well. Even if you're somebody who has trusted in Christ, repented of your sins. It's one of those sinful things that happened in our hearts when Adam sinned and we inherited his sinful heart. You are going to be constantly tempted to live Paul is going to hear say, you're going to be constantly tempted to live as somebody who's not an heir. Not A-I-R, but H-E-I-R. Maybe to control God by doing good things with stuff. Or make him answer your prayers by doing things with stuff. There's a draw to act like a hired worker. Working for your standing by using things and doing things for the person who's now giving you wages. There's a draw to act like a hired worker. Working for your standing with God. And that is a strong desire. And it's also found inside the church as well. So our first point is this. God prepared his people by withholding rights and privileges until the great heir came. God prepared his people by withholding rights and privileges until the great heir came, H-E-I-R. Hopefully you can see this with me in Galatians 4. We're going to read the first two verses. 
I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, we've already seen in this letter that God made wonderful promises of salvation and inheritance to a man named Abraham, 2,000 years-ish before Jesus came. And so about 4,000 years ago today, God made wonderful promises to this man named Abraham, promises of salvation and inheritance. And these promises were given to Abraham and a singular offspring who would come sometime in the future. And we know that this is the Lord Jesus. But even though the promised singular heir of Abraham would come from his flesh, from his family line, there would also be many others who would receive the inheritance from God by trusting in the promises that God made to Abraham and his heir. And while these people were waiting for that heir, the Messiah, to come, God put them under a guardian or a tutor. And he called this the book of the law. So many rules. Not mean rules, but lots of rules. Lots of rules. Not only were they required to keep the Ten Commandments, like things that are always morally good and forbidden from doing things that were always morally evil. Not only are they required to keep the Ten Commandments, like no worshiping other gods, no murdering, no sexual sin, no stealing, no lying. Not only were they they were commanded to abstain from sinful things, but they were also given a lot of other instructions, what to eat, what to wear, feasts to celebrate, how to farm a field. And none of these extra instructions that God gave to them broke any of God's timeless laws of good and evil. But many things that were good were actually forbidden because God said, I'm going to make that choice for you. You don't get to make that choice. Now I have a question. What does a firefighter on the job and a two-year-old girl have in common? They both don't get to pick their own clothes. The hired worker and the little child have that in common. There are many choices that aren't necessarily good or evil, but that just aren't their choices to make. There are many choices that a parent makes for a young kid that are definitely matters of good and evil, right? Don't kick your brother. That's not just a parental requirement. That's just bad. Don't kick your brother, all right? Don't be rude to the next door neighbor. But there's also many choices that a parent makes for a young child that aren't a matter of good and evil. I want my kids to wear blue. I want my little girl to wear a pink frilly dress. We eat supper at 5.30. Your bedtime is 7.30. You can watch one TV show per day. You may never cheer for the New England Patriots or the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. (laughs) Now, even if these choices are made with lots of good thoughts and done with great wisdom. They're not necessarily the difference between good and evil, apart from the Saskatchewan Rough Riders thing. That is a moral thing. Now, think even about a very, very, very wealthy family. A child who is technically very, very rich. 
lots of land, lots of houses. But for the moment, he doesn't get to pick where he lives. Very different, but also very similar to a grown-up adult who has just enough money where he has only one option for where to live. So, in some ways, you can't tell that very rich kid with lots of property and homes apart from a grown-up adult who has really only one option to live. On the surface, there's this thing they have in common. They don't have a lot of choices. Now, you've seen little Prince George dressed up in nice and cute with sweater vests and dress shorts, so cute. He is the heir of a vast fortune. He's the future king. Now, I am not a rich man, but I have more choice in what I get to wear than that little kid does. I also have more choice in where my mail will be addressed than he does. Now, he's not a servant or a slave or a hired hand. He's an heir. There's a huge difference between him and the servants, but there's also many similarities. He's told what to do a lot. And not only in matters of good and evil, but it will not be forever. Because he is not merely a servant, he is a son. And it will all be his soon. All the choices will be his. Now, of course, that doesn't mean he's now permitted to choose wickedness and sin, but the choices will be his to do with this vast inheritance. Until, or, and it won't be that way until the day set by his father or by the Constitution of England. Who knows? Now, Paul says that this is a very, is a proper way to understand the book of the law. Those extra rules that God gave to his people in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. Many regulations before Jesus came. Circumcision included. Food laws included. Clothing laws included. These laws were added as we've already seen in, in, in Galatians, they were added because the heir hadn't come yet. The perfect sinless heir hadn't come yet. The time of inheritance set by God had not yet come. Yes, God, God gave to Abraham many gospel promises. Yes, he was promised that the actual heir of these promises would come from his flesh, would come from his family. And while that family waited for the heir to come, they were marked in many glorious ways as the people of God. And they were also temporarily marked as juvenile heirs. God giving them instructions on things that were not all matters of good and evil, but choices he would make for them nonetheless. Until the fullness of time had come and the heir would come. And the arrival of that heir we celebrate at Christmas. It takes takes us to our second point. The training of the law used mundane things to make a glorious point. The training of the law used mundane things to make a glorious point. Hopefully you can see this with me in verse four. In the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, what are the elementary principles of the world? Paul's talking about the basic stuff of the world. Like ordinary things, the basic way that the world works. And there's a parallel passage in Colossians chapter 2. You can check that out. Paul explains that this is referring to things like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, or asceticism, which is 
avoiding certain things and, and being mean to your body, keeping away from certain things. You know, avoiding things that might be enjoyable, but just avoiding them for the sake of being holy. Now, extra rules about food and cleanliness and rejecting some things that would actually be enjoyable because God said, don't do these things. They were to obey these things, recognizing that he was their God and he made these choices for them while they were in their state of immaturity. Now, it's not that there's something more immature about them compared to the nations around them or that they were less mature than the people of God after Christ. That's not what this is saying. It's saying that the mature heir had not yet come. And compared to him and apart from him, they are not mature. The mature heir hadn't come yet. Now on the surface, if you only looked at those extra rules, those regulations and ceremonies and sacrifices and food laws and, and clothing laws, if you just on the surface, if that's all you looked like, looked at, you might see some similarities with the religions of the world. You might have thought, Israel is just like the Canaanites. They do the same things with their gods. It was a, it was a very common thing for religions around the world, and even now, to take the ordinary stuff of life and then restrict it to show that you're one of the people that has favor with God or to appease the spirits or the ancestors or to gain eternal life or to achieve uh, the, whatever goal you think is of human life to be one with the universe or to achieve Zen or something like that. In Cambodia, in Cambodia a number of years ago, uh, it was heartbreaking to see desperately poor families starving families to enter a temple and feed the bananas that they could have themselves eaten and feed them to statues or to stuff paper money that they could have used to feed their kids and stuff it into an idol. Look what I brought you. Look what I gave up for you. Now you have to repay me. I gave you some of the stuff you made. I used it to make you hear me. So the religions of the world, the pagans, use stuff God made and either treat that stuff as an idol or they use it to treat God as an idol. I did the things you've got to answer me. Now we can also see this of the, in the false gods of our, our current culture, even that don't look very religious, consider sexual pleasure or sexual identity. See, we're, we're told by our culture's prophets that we need sexual pleasure and we cannot be complete without it. We need it in the exact way we want it, when we want it, how we want it. And to deny that is to deny yourself and is to deny, is to actually become unwhole, an unfulfilled person. You're denying your personhood by doing this. So if your gender that's given by God himself, if your gender is not fulfilling you, which of course it can't, because only God can satisfy. But if your gender isn't satisfying you, then you must pick another one. The one that you think would make a better idol, that would satisfy you more. So we use gifts that God has made as idols. Or to treat God himself like an idol. So it is with money. So it is with health. So it is with recreation. We're constantly coming up with ways to achieve the goal of humanity by using or abstaining from the stuff that God has made. 
But in so doing, we create a relationship with whatever false God we have. That's the relationship of a hired servant. I did the things, and now you owe me. I wore what you told me to wear. You owe me. I didn't wear what you forbade me to wear. You owe me. I ate what you told me to eat and didn't eat what you told me not to eat. You owe me. I worked. Now I get wages. Now, as I said, if that's all you knew about the Old Testament was just those extra regulations, you might conclude that it was very similar to the relationship of the pagans to their gods. But you would be a fool for doing this. Paul has already told you that the promises come before those laws, those promises of adoption, those promises of salvation and inheritance. He says that's that law stuff that was added. But of course, some of those people from the people of Israel, they did forget about the promises of God, the promises of grace, and they did use those things, the temple and the food laws and the clothing laws. They used those things the way that the nations used those things and tried to control God, tried to make him do things, tried to gain things from him. Now, Brother George read from Amos, where God's people were lambasted for treating these laws and ceremonies as the point. God says, those things do nothing. They don't make you my people. Your genetic relationship to Abraham does nothing. Your sacrifices do nothing. Your ceremonies do nothing. Your clothes do nothing. Your food does nothing. Even though I picked those for you, they do not make you my sons. Just dressing like Prince George doesn't make you an heir. And walking into the house and setting fire to it and then being dressed like Prince George and you go up to mom and dad and say, no, 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 you, you must be happy with me because the clothes I'm wearing. He's saying this is as foolish as that. This is Paul's point. These things don't make you my sons. Faith in my promises makes you my sons and daughters. And the, the Lord used the training of the law of Moses. He used mundane, ordinary. That's what mundane means, ordinary. Things that aren't very glorious. Ordinary stuff. Not to save his people, but to make a glorious point that whoever trusted in him is an heir. An immature heir. Is the, 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 the mature heir hasn't come yet, but an heir. Those who trust in him are heirs, and he expected them to live as heirs that had not yet inherited. That brings us to our third point. When the fullness of time had come, those rights and privileges of sonship were restored. When the fullness of time had come, those rights and privileges of sonship were restored. Let's read this in verses 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's far God's word. So, this, uh, th these extra laws and regulations, picking the clothes, picking the food, that was only temporary. It was never the goal. 
It was never again to be the way that God's people relate to him. The coming of Jesus to God's people was a declaration by God that the time set for their inheritance to be received that had come. Now there had never been up until that point an Israelite ready, mature enough to receive that inheritance. Only the Lord Jesus Christ, not until the Lord Jesus Christ was born to Mary and Joseph. It's not that believers here, as we said, are more mature after Jesus than before Jesus came. The point is that Christ is the only heir mature enough to inherit. For many years, for hundreds of years, the people of God, even those who trusted in him, they had to wear certain clothes, eat certain foods, celebrate certain festivals and ceremonies. They had to live in a certain land, live amongst a certain people, The males were circumcised. And yet, all of this training, all of this did not make them mature enough to inherit. You say, well, just give them more time. Thousands of years, and still, it didn't make them mature enough. They were not able to produce that mature heir. Somebody who was man enough to save them and redeem them and inherit the promises that God made to Abraham. So God gave them his own heir. So God gave them his own son. He gave him to Israel to be their heir. And he joined their family by taking on a human body and a human soul and being born to the Virgin Mary. And he, he obeyed all God's laws perfectly. Even those extra training the heir laws. He was born under the law to keep it perfectly. And he did it. Not as a lone ranger. He did it as the heir of Abraham. And it would count for all the children of Abraham. And you are a child of Abraham if you have the same faith as Abraham. Paul just finished saying. And so he did this and it counts for all the other heirs. Who's an heir? Whoever trusts in the gospel. And so his record in keeping the law counts for everybody who trusts in him. But also he went to the cross to take the curses of the law. Whose curses? Those who trust in him. For all the ways that we've broken God's law, he took the curses on the cross. He did it on behalf of all who trusted in God's gospel promises. And God proved that he had done that by raising him from the dead. God further showed that the heir had come by removing the vast multitude of restrictions on the heirs. To use Paul's illustration, now the heirs don't have to wear the clothes or eat the food or do the chores or live in the land that dad picked for them. These distinctions that mark Jew and Gentile were a dividing wall, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, and that wall is now gone in Christ. Pick your own clothes now. The mature heir has come, and you're in him. His maturity counts for you. It's credited to you. So there's not a particular food to eat or particular clothes to wear chosen by God. Pick your own. There's no God-chosen food, no God-chosen clothes. There's not a particular land to live picked out by God, your father. Pick your own. 
no God-chosen land. There's not a particular nation or culture picked out by God, your father. Pick your own. No God-chosen culture or nation. This is a declaration that the mature heir has finally come. And he wasn't produced by Israel. But God gave his own son to Israel because they couldn't produce their own heir who was man enough to inherit all of that. To eat what you want, the heir has come. And you are part of his body, of the heir's body, by trusting in him. Now, good is still good and bad is still bad. Dad's not picking your clothes any longer, but that doesn't mean there's no way to sin in your clothing choice. Like wearing a Rough Riders jersey. That's sinful. Old covenant or new covenant, that's bad. No, but revealing or sexualized clothing or clothing chosen intentionally to offend. Murder is still wrong and still forbidden because God hates murder and he's the author of life. So abortion and slave trading and slaving people are wicked. Theft is wicked. Lying is wicked. Selfishness is still forbidden. Sexual sin, adultery, sex outside of marriage, rape, pornography, homosexuality, divorce, other than in the case of adultery. Paul's illustration is a good one here. Becoming an adult who inherits family fortune may mean that you get to pick your own clothes, but it doesn't mean you get to rob a bank. Brings us to our fourth point. The Holy Spirit moves a Christian to simply relate to God as our Father in Christ. The Holy Spirit moves a Christian to simply relate to God as our Father in Christ. Let's see this in 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Leave it there for a second. Now, I want you to imagine a group of children sitting around a table for a family meal. Okay, got this picture, a group of children sitting around a table for a family meal. I want you to think about three kids There's a lasagna kid, there's a fried chicken kid, and there's a spring roll kid, okay? So, one child asks the father of the household to pass the lasagna and says, pass the lasagna because I did all the chores that you asked me, I wore the clothes that you said your kid should wear, and I happen to live in the same place that your family lives. You need to give me that food. The other kid... One one other asks the father of the household to pass the fried chicken and says, pass the fried chicken because everyone in the world is your child. In fact, everything belongs to every person. You don't really own anything, father. Give it to me because it's mine. The third asks the father of the household to pass the spring rolls and says, father, I know I'm your child because you adopted me and I heard you make promises to me at my adoption. I'm pretty sure that whatever work I did today was not enough to pay what I'm asking for. And we both know that I broke some of your rules today. So dear father, can you please give me some spring rolls? Because I need them. Which of those children approached the father of the house like a son? Spring roll guy did. Not the lasagna guy. No, he approached the father as a hired worker, didn't he? And it wasn't the fried chicken guy either. He approached the father like an enemy. It's almost like a stick-up. Everything belongs to us anyways. You can't, take, you can't hold it back. Give it to me. The spring roll guy approached the father like a son. 
Now, I want to say, dear Christian, if your approach to God as father is merely on the basis of adoption through those who trust in Christ, you are his heir. Just on the promises he made to those who trust in Christ, you are his heir. Many people try to call on God as father, but only those who do so trusting in the adopting work of Jesus are actually his children. And not one of them would do that if they didn't have the Holy Spirit within them. Paul's not talking about a voice in your head saying, God is your father, God is your father. He's not talking about that. He's talking about something sweeter than that. He's talking about the ability to speak to God with confidence in Christ's sonship rather than your own And that's not something a person without the Holy Spirit would do or could do. Saying, help me, dear Father, and resting on Christ's death and resurrection for that to the answer to that prayer. Calling on God's love and mercy and his promises. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in you, dear Christian. And if that's how you relate to God, you are his heir. So treasure it. Exercise that gift of calling out to God as dear Father in Christ. It is sweet, and Christ purchased that for you with his blood. Call on him like an heir. Fifth point is this. Those who prefer a slavish relationship with God do not know him, just like the pagans do not know him. Let's see this in verses 8 through 12. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that were by nature not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Thus far God's word. Dear brothers and sisters, there is a tendency in the human heart to prefer a slavish relationship with God. Paul, born an Israelite, under the laws for immature future heirs, he beca- because Christ had come, he now no longer lives under those laws. Just like the non-Jews were not under those laws. And that's why he said, "Become, I became as you were. That's what he's saying to the the, the Gentiles who were, or sorry, the, the Galatians who were not Jewish. I became as you were. I, I got rid of all those extra rules because Christ had come and the inheritance has come. And he says to the non-Jewish Galatian Christians who have been tricked into putting, into putting on those old laws, thinking that there was still a God-chosen menu, a God-chosen nation, ethnicity, clothing. He says to them, don't act as if the mature heir hasn't come. Be like me and live as though the mature heir has come because he has. And we now live in that freedom. Here we can see the sweet doctrine of Christian freedom. Tossed around a lot these days, isn't it? Christian freedom. It's actually confused very often with Christian conscience. They are not the same thing. They are actually opposites. God has given his heart in scripture as to what is wicked and what is lovely. We can see that in his law. And those who trust in Christ now glorify God by making wise decisions and choices without 
God telling them which choices to make all the time. So asking him to whisper more commands or more promises or giving you visions or impressions is pagan. It's pagan. It's pagan. Listening prayer is a pagan ritual, which you will not find in the Old Testament. You will not find in the New Testament. It is refusing to act like an heir of God and preferring to act as a hired hand. Give me more rules. Tell me which job to pick. Tell me which person to marry. Tell me which house to buy. You're an heir. Pick it yourself. When, God, when, when Paul describes the extra rules for hired workers and immature sons, he calls them elementary principles. What to eat, where, where to live. Wishing to go back to the old covenant where God picked everything out for you or a lot of things would be like a man who's already been handed control of the family fortune and the family business, coming, calling up his dad every morning and asking him what to wear. Something is wrong with that guy. Somebody who talks about what he deserves, maybe, rather than embracing promises of the father. So what is it? What is it about the human heart that prefers a slavish relationship to God? Which makes up a God they can control by doing the right things with the stuff that he made. Which makes up a God who doesn't own all things, but can try to control things. I think scripture would tell us that pride and the desire for control. To control the future. To control God into controlling the future. Or maybe a way to show that you're more deserving of sonship. And this is a tendency in the church as well. Even people who are children of God by faith in Christ, it is a wicked temptation and we need to reject it whenever we see it. As I said, I found listening prayer to be a perfect example, the fully flowered fruit of this nonsense. That's often called finding God's will for my life. A young man wants to be married. He wants God to tell him what woman to marry. A young couple wants to buy a house. They want God to tell them which house to pick. So they seek a sign or they want God to speak to them. Tell me which house to buy, which woman to marry. Tell me what job to pick. Asking God for more commands is pagan. Now, when I arrived at this church, there was a group doing a Bible study or a, a book study of a book written by John Eldridge where he applies this garbage. He and his wife wanted to get a Christmas tree. They picked a day of the week, but they didn't ask God to tell them which day to go. So they got into a car accident. This is wicked, pagan, nonsense. Wicked. Could there have been a wrong day to go? Well, sure. If they made plans to take their neighbor to cancer treatments, and instead of doing that, they, they went and got a Christmas tree, that would be wrong. Or if it would be stealing time from an employer, that would also be wrong. But here you can see they're craving the relationship with God that pagans have. Tell me all the things to do so I can make sure that I'm happy, that you are happy with me, and I can make sure you do good things for me. And the pagans don't know God, and God does not know them. Dear brothers and sisters, I've also seen this in regards to COVID responses. 
confusing Christian freedom and exchanging it for a slavish relationship to God. Does God demand that I wear a mask? Does he demand that I not wear a mask? Neither. Neither. You are an heir of God. If your faith is in Christ and he makes no commands either way, he does require you to make a wise choice. Use your brain. Think what would be best. He makes no commands either way. And he's delighted. Oh, is he delighted to watch you make wise decisions for good reasons as his children. And he is disgusted when you think that these COVID choices are treated as things that marked you as his children. So too with the vaccine you are forbidding, forbidden from acting as though God told you to do it or that he told you not to do it. You cannot confuse Christian freedom with Christian conscience. That is paganism. The pagans' gods, they will require their people to make the right choice of COVID or face their wrath. But our God's not like that. And those churches that make claims about how masks dishonor God are acting like pagans. So too are the churches that make claim, claims about non-mask wearing as dishonoring God. Both are trying to bring paganism into the church. And both of those things need to be soundly rejected. Don't try to act like there's more rules that God has made for his people. He does want you to act wisely. And it delights him to see you making Choices based on wisdom. But don't you dare say that God told you to do it or told you not to do it. Because you're acting like a pagan. So dear friends, dear guests, if you haven't repented of your rebellion against God and trusted in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, if you're not trusting that his life and death saves you and makes you God's child, then you aren't God's child. If you're trusting in your own choices, your wisdom, your obedience to claim that you know God, you are damned under a curse, says Paul. So repent and trust in Jesus and receive the gift of adoption as God's children and, and dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Be super on guard for that impulse that treats God as the boss of a hired worker rather than as the father of an heir. Don't be foolish enough to want more instructions from God as if you were a hired hand rather than an heir. Masks, vaccines, beards, skirts, jobs. Obey his word that he's given to his adopted heirs. And seek to glorify him in the choices which he truly gives you the freedom to choose. Reject listening prayer. And the pagan notion that you have to ask God which choices you can make apart from the clear commands of his word. And pray a lot. Dear brothers and sisters, make much of that sweet, miraculous gift that, that the Lord Jesus paid for you with his blood. The Holy Spirit working in you to call on God as Father with faith in Jesus Christ. Many people try to call on God as Father, but they're not really because they're, faith, they're not doing it with faith in Christ. 
but you can. This is a sweet gift. Make much of it. Take advantage of it. Use it. Delight in him. We come to the point in the service where we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's a visible gift. God using stuff to make a promise. And the promise is not to all who eat it or drink it. The promise is all who trust in Christ's body and blood. And the promise is that if you do trust in Christ's body and blood, then what he did counts for you. And you get the seat at the table that he deserves rather than the place on the cross that you deserve. And this is his promise to his sons and daughters. He invites you to come around the table to eat the bread and to drink from the cup, to not become his children, but to demonstrate you are the people who trust in his promises on Christ's life and death and resurrection. And so if your faith is not in Christ, do not take. And I want to say a word to our young children here. We're very glad you're here. But if you haven't yet been make, made a public profession of faith and, and baptism, that doesn't mean God's promises aren't for you. You can see God making the promises with the bread and the cup. But we wait for the day when you publicly confess Christ before us and we would give you baptism and Lord's Supper. We look forward to that day. We pray for it. We're excited about it. So I'm going to ask the elders to come forward and as they do, I want to lead